if you'll notice, one of our themes, uh, obviously with this Christmas season, is Emmanuel, God with us. Um, and then, I love, I love that song, uh, speaking of this idea of Emmanuel, God with us. In the Old Testament, almost every time uh, God comes down and appears. So th- I mean, think about this. I mean, here's this, this promise, and that's what we're going to look at this this uh, morning is there's this promise of God's presence. Uh, Over the past several weeks, we've looked at um, a few aspects of the Savior of the world. And who is the Savior of the world? And we first looked at the promise of the Savior of the world a couple weeks ago. And then last week, we looked specifically at the identity of the Savior, that He is the God-man, that He's fully God and fully man. And then He modeled what he modeled most, probably one of the key characteristics of this Savior, and we looked at it in Philippians 2, is that he's full of humility. We see the humility of the Savior. But today, I want us to look at now he's, you know, the idea of God with us. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, we'll look at verse, we'll look at uh, this, this section of, of this passage, Matthew 1. Um, the different accounts that Matthew and Luke bring to us of um, the virgin birth, the birth of uh, this Savior of the world. And so, but I want you to, I want to go back, before we read this passage, I want us to go back to, not all the way necessarily to the very beginning, but in the Old Testament, almost every time God uh, comes down and appears, think about this, almost every time in the Old Testament when God comes down and He appears among humanity, what is the characteristic? What are some of the traits? I would say one of the things that you notice first is it's terrifying. <laughs> when, when he comes to earth, in the Old Testament especially, when he comes, it's terrifying. I mean, think about it. When he, got, when he was with Abraham, when he established his covenant, in kind of one of the weird stories as you read this covenant and how God was confirming his covenant with with God, do you remember it was like this burning furnace comes and it and it floats and it's it's very terrifying as it as it uh, as it passes through and as he's confirming his presence with Abraham, but also confirming this great covenant. Think about with Job and Elijah. Think about how he how he appeared to them in a tornado, a whirlwind. How when when God shows up in front of Job, it's like this tornado and I don't know about you I've never seen a tornado in person I mean anybody seen a tornado in person that is one of the most terrifying dreams that I have <laughs> I've seen plenty of tornadoes just all of my dreams uh and every time it's terrifying to me uh I, I don't know how many times I've dreamed about I think I, I was too young when I watched the movie Twister and that has just marred the rest of my life with tornadoes um but I mean think about it I mean what more for me like what more terrifying is there besides being in a shark-infested waters uh, than a tornado. And so this idea of God comes in the, in the Old Testament as this whirlwind. He comes with this, this ferocity about him, and there's this power. When he reveals himself to Moses, he's this burning bush. There's this fire. And in the Old Testament, the same thing. When his presence was with the people, what was it? The Shekinah glory. It's that, that phrase we use, the Shekinah glory. And that Shekinah glory was God saying, in a, a pillar of cloud by day, I'm going to lead you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go before you. But what was it? It was a pillar of fire at night. When God would meet with Moses and Israel, he was like this pillar of fire. When God, when they created the tabernacle, the tabernacle was set up to be a dwelling place for God in the midst of his people. He wanted to be with his people. 
But the problem is there was a difference between God and man, and there was a big obstacle in the way. The obstacle in the way of that was sin. The sin that was in between God and man was so great that what was, it, what was the case when God would come and indwell and this cloud would come, the Shekinah glory, and dwell in the tabernacle in the temple? No one was allowed in there. Listen, remember, only one time a year was the high priest, the highest of priests, was allowed to go into uh, to offer the sacrifice for the people. It was sacred, it was holy, and so his presence was was terrifying. And when, even when you look at the, the Old Testament and see Isaiah, when he sees the Lord, he's terrified. He's frightened. He's fearful. I mean, what are the first things when an angel even appears? Not just God, when an angel appears, what's the first things out of those angels' mouths? Don't be afraid, right? Because they're terrifying. It's not like a chubby, cute little thing sitting on a cloud. It's, it's this fierce being that is terrifying. And then all of a sudden it's like, hey, don't be afraid. I know I look menacing, but don't be afraid. I'm, I'm bearing some good news for you, right? And so when we think about the presence of God, there's this aspect of him being uh, terrifying or scary or just immense and powerful and overwhelming. And see, if you can tell, when you see God, hear about him or see his work, it's one thing. But when the people would get to actually be with God, it was life-changing. When Moses would go and speak with God, do you remember? When he would go and speak with God, when he would go up on Mount, Mount Sinai, he goes and visits with God and God communicates and, and, and speaks with Moses. What would happen to Moses' face? His face would, the glory of the Lord would shine literally on him. And so he would wear this veil for days and maybe even weeks as it slowly was fading away. And then we have this promise of a Savior in the New Testament. But here's the thing. I mean, think about it this way. I think one way for me to illustrate the idea of it's one thing to see, to like know things about God, like to, to hear about His works, right? We, we hear about what He's done. We, we've heard some truths about things that He's accomplished, things that He's done, all these different things, right? We've heard things about Him. But it's another thing to know Him. Uh, my idol, when I was in high school, in middle school and high school, I loved baseball. I wanted, to, I wanted to play in the major leagues. And so I dedicated most of my teenage years playing a lot of baseball. And I loved it. And one of my idols, I, I was a Braves fan because even in Charlotte, it was okay to be an Atlanta fan. It's not okay to be an Atlanta Falcons fan, but it was okay to be a Braves fan. And so, uh, because they were the regional, they were like the South team, you know, they're the team of the South kind of thing. And they were on TBS and all these things. So I would Every night I would do my homework sometimes and I would watch the Braves game. I would always watch the Braves game. I would sometimes do my homework. Um, but, and one of my idols was Greg Maddox. I loved Greg Maddox. I loved how he pitched. I loved his demeanor, his command over a fastball and how he could move a fastball from like three feet somehow. And you're like, how did you do this? And so everything about me, I watched every, every single one of his games almost when he was with the Braves. He was with the Cubs as well for years as well. And I would watch him and learn. And I would try to pattern myself after him. Everything about him, like the way he, even his windup, all those things I was trying to imitate. Because I wanted to be like Greg Maddox. I wanted to be, and I would actually, like, I think I knew him pretty well. But I mean, I didn't know him at all. I'd never met him in person. Because it, isn't it true though? It's one thing to know a lot of things about someone. I mean, like I really did. I mean, seriously, if someone studied Greg Maddox, I was up there on studying Greg Maddox. But he didn't know me and I really didn't know him. I had never met him. If I ever met him, I'd have probably been terrified and probably have just never said anything. You know, it would have been just in awe of his presence. 
I think of it this way too. My kids are in here. They, we love the beach. Uh, we love to go to the ocean. Uh, but what if, what if I took them and said, you know, we're going to drive all the way down to Florida. We're going to go to some beautiful beaches. And we're going to go down there and I want us to sit on the beach and we're just going to watch the waves. How would you feel, right? You're like, we're just going to watch. We're going to sit out here and we're just going to watch the waves. We're going to watch uh, the, the rolling tide. So a lot of you women, you're like, yes, sign me up for that trip, right? But my kids, they're like, no, I don't, I don't go to the beach to look at it and to listen to it. I want to experience, I want to feel the wave's power. I want to go into it and feel the push and the pull of that wave. You see, it's one thing to to observe and to know. It's another to experience. And see, in this Christmas season, in the Advent season, there is this amazing truth about this. And it's really right here. And I want us to read it together. It's in Matthew chapter 1. We see it throughout Scripture. Uh, It's promised for, for... pages upon pages in the Old Testament, and we get to see it actually happen in Matthew 1. And so look with me, starting in verse 18. It says this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, here we go, do not fear to make take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will, notice this, this is interesting, verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so when Joseph, opened, or when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is an incredible statement. If we just pause again, Pull out the sentimental feelings and thoughts about Christmas and just reflect on this amazing truth that it says this, that Emmanuel is God with us. Now, the confusing part, though, is like this. What do we call him? I mean, we're told in verse, Joseph's told to name him Jesus. And here we're told, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So what are we supposed to call him? Emmanuel, Jesus, wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace. What What are we to name him? Well, if you look at Scripture and throughout Scripture, when we have a name, it's helping us to understand who God is. It's not His name. It is His name, but it's a name to describe Him. It's ways to describe who God is, that He is this wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting Father. He is the Prince of Peace. I mean, even as Jesus, you say, well, he's not, he's not the Father, like in the Trinity, the Father, but he's like a Father to the nations. He is in that way. So it's a description of Him. But one of the grandest descriptions that we have in Scripture is Emmanuel, literally meaning God is with us. He tabernacles with us. We looked at this, a portion of this, when we looked at John 1 and 114. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. I mean, amazing statement that Jesus is God with us, this Emmanuel. And so even if we look back to Leviticus 26, 12, 
you know, as God is giving the law to Israel in the desert, God speaks of his intent to walk among you and be your God and that you will be my people. He's like, I, I so want to be with my people. I so want to be with you. That's why we're going to have this tabernacle because listen, there's sin that's in the way, but here's the thing. Here's the promise. He is going to come. And so I want us to look at really just kind of three lessons, really two lessons and then an application point with a third one um, of the presence of the Savior. And the first one is this, is by coming, by Jesus coming, we see that he took the initiative. So God took the initiative. By coming, we see that he took the initiative. He came. He stepped. Let me think about this. He stepped from heaven's throne. You know, he didn't play, Levi's getting ready to pay attention to this because I told him this, I was getting ready to say this this morning, so I'm hoping he catches it. You know, he didn't play a game of cosmic hide-and-go-seek, right? He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't just go hide somewhere behind some galaxy billions of light years away and hide out there, and it's like, all right, let's see if humanity can build a telescope to find me hiding behind XYZ star, No, God isn't playing this game of hide and seek with us and saying, all right, figure out who I am, figure out where I am, figure out if you can get to me, see if you can build a spacecraft big enough to get as far as you can, like we try to do with Mars and all these different things. And we try to build bigger telescopes. But every time we build a bigger telescope, we get to see another galaxy and another million galaxies at this point. But think about this. God takes the initiative He doesn't say, come find me. He comes and he invades. God with us, Emmanuel, the God who spoke the world into existence, the one who rules over all creation, has a name for every star. I mean, I don't, I mean, good night. I can't even remember my own kids' names sometimes. And he has a name for every star. And we're talking about millions or maybe even billions of galaxies at this point, which is a cluster of a bazillion stars. And he has a name for all of them, and he knows every, every hair on your head. He knows every detail about you. This God comes. This God who transcends all things is yet imminent. He's near. He comes. But how does he come? This, this great Lord and King of all kings and Lord of all lords, the Creator God, the one who knows all these things, he's the one who humbles himself as we looked at last week. He humbles himself to take on the form of a human being. I mean, just even reflecting on that is mind-boggling. You know, we looked at his identity last week. He's fully God and he's fully man. And, but this God-man takes the initiative to come. Here's the promise. This God, the one true God, is with you. He pursues He initiates. He says, I'm going to die instead of them. I will take their place. You know, when it came to asking Amanda to be my wife, I didn't send a messenger. I didn't say, you know what? I need my best friend. Can you go ask this beautiful blonde if you can just ask her that and see if she would marry me? Like, I'm not going to send someone else for that conversation. As nervous as I was and, and intimidated as well, there, there was definitely times where it was like, it might would be easier if just someone would ask for me. But no, but love draws you to initiate. And see, think about what it means that he initiates, that he invades, that he says, I'm going to go be with my people. I'm not going to say here and let you try to find me. I'm going to come. I'm going to go. 
You know, no one else was going to come and stand for me in my place with asking, because the fear would have been that she would have said yes to them or something and not me. I don't know. But, but the, the point being is like, no, in, in instances of love, you're initiated by that. You're motivated by that love. And you, it, it causes you to do something about it. And here God's love is this motivator. And he says, I'm coming. There is no other path. There is no other way to make right what was broken in the Garden of Eden. The sin that is separated, that's caused only a high priest once a year to come and offer sacrifice and come into the Holy of Holies. Now, as we learn in Hebrews, this great book of Hebrews, that this great high priest has come and he's come to make a way. You see, love motivated him to go. Love motivated Christ to come and he took the initiative. So the second point is this, second lesson we can learn from this is because God is with us, we have a pattern to follow. Because God came, because he is Emmanuel, God literally with us, we have a pattern to follow. We have someone to follow. In Colossians 1.15, uh, we, we learned that he is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus, God incarnate, is the image of who God is. In verse 19 of that same chapter, says, in him, in Christ, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So the Godhead, the fullness of God is dwelling in Christ and he's among us. He's walking. We get to know what he's like. We can get to know what he thinks. We get to see how he acts and responds, that he's compassionate. Um, a, a commentator, Michael Wilkins, uh, in, in talking about this passage, he gives really four specific ways that Christ models how we as his followers, followers should pattern uh, our lives. And he mentions four. I want to just mention them to you. Feel free to write these down or, or just try to remember them, I guess. But he mentions these four things Michael does. And he says this, like, as we think about as followers of Christ, we should pattern and model ourselves after Christ. Notice four things. I mean, there's a lot that we could do, but these four kind of encapsulate, I think, the, the, the intent here. He says this, the first one he mentions, he says, Jesus had perfect fellowship with the Father. He had perfect, I mean, think about it. Jesus, when, when he comes, we see even in his coming, even in his humanity, he has perfect fellowship with the Father. You see, he gets up early in the morning. He goes and he prays. He blesses food uh, before breaking bread and feeding thousands of people. He blesses it. He talks to the Father. He goes to the Father. He's, he's about to be crucified on a cross. And he goes to the Father and he prays and he's pleading with the Father. and He's communicating with the Father. We see over and over again, he had perfect fellowship with the Father. Again, that's something to model. We modeled that. And as a follower of Christ, we should be growing and, and becoming more like Christ in this area of having more fellowship with the Father through prayer. Uh, another one is this. He mentions this. Number two, he mentions Jesus obeyed the Father's will perfectly. He came to fulfill the Father's will. What the Father had willed, Jesus completely and fully submitted to. He was completely obedient. Jesus obeyed the Father's will perfectly. Another one he mentions as well, as we are followers trying to imitate and follow this pattern that Jesus uh, gives us as he is dwelling among us, is Jesus displayed a love for all people. Emphasis on all people. Jesus displayed a love for all people. He lovingly spoke harshly to the Pharisees. He lovingly draws in uh, the, the Samaritan woman who has lived a lifestyle of sin. 
to the adulterous person, to the, the, the sick, to the well. God continued to love all people. That's a model that we can follow. Because he came, we can know that. We can see it. We can feel it. We can, we can read all about it. Jesus displayed a love for all people. And finally, this is Jesus' love. Jesus' love was demonstrated by freely giving up his life for us. Jesus' love was demonstrated by freely giving up his life for us. I'll say that one more time because it's a little bit longer. Jesus' love was a demon, uh, love demonstrate was demonstrated by freely giving up his life for us and isn't that the call for us that to give of our lives we say our life is a a living sacrifice as paul wrote in um romans 12 our life is a living sacrifice pleasing to the lord following the lord and saying god this is my life i give it up freely for you i give it up for the brothers i give it up for the lost around me my life is a sacrifice Uh, To you and for you, Jesus' love was that demonstration. And and because he came, we get to see that and model it. You know, again, back to Greg Maddox, uh, for me, you know, he was a great example for me to follow if I wanted to be a pitcher. You know, I wouldn't know how to pitch like him if I never saw him, if I didn't ever observe him. As I watched him, I learned, okay, this is what he does in this kind of account. This is what he does in this situation. When the, the game's on the line or when, in different situations, I observed and watched, and I could try to model after him. You know, in a similar way, but infinitely fuller way, Jesus is our example. The way he had compassion on people, being a servant, sinless, love for people. All of these speak to what God is like. And if we are called to be like him, here's how we know what to do and act like. It's because he came, Emmanuel, God with us. The final, final point, and this is really, really where I want to bring some application to it, is this, is God went to great lengths to be near. God went to great lengths to be near us. So here's the question. What are you doing to draw near to him? You know, God went to great lengths to be near. What are we doing? What are you doing? What am I doing to draw near to him? Hebrews chapter 4 Verse 16, you can turn there if you want. Hebrews chapter 4, I'll read it as well. And we're going to also look at James 4, which is right next to it. So in Hebrews 4, verse 16, we get this great statement. You know, we've learned that Jesus is our great high priest. Look at verse 14. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Here he goes. He's invading our planet. He's coming through. He's, he's, He's far, but yet he's near. He's high and above. He's the great creator God, but yet he comes and he invades. He passes through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God. Notice this. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So notice this. Here's the call. Jesus comes. He draws near. He initiates. Look at verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You see, he invades, he comes, he is our great high priest. He comes and we're going to send a video to you this week really looking and kind of culminating our series with with this ultimate look of the mission of the Savior. But here, as we see this, we're seeing that mission. He comes as this great high priest. He does this, but what's the call? What's the invitation? He initiates. He says, I'm coming for you. I'm going to be with you. Now here's the call. It's come and join me. Draw near to me. But how do we do that? What do we do? Look at at James chapter 4. 
So just over a couple pages, James chapter 4, the next, uh, the next book right after Hebrews. James 4, verse 8 through 10, says this, Draw near to God. Draw near to God and He will draw near to you. It's like this duplicate promise. He has already come. He's here. He's, he's come. He's already accomplished what was needed for our salvation. He's the one who died on the cross. He invades. He comes. He dwells. And now the calling is for us to draw near, us to come to Him. And as we do that, it's like this reciprocating relationship. He comes and invades and we join Him. And look at verse, uh, verse 9 as it continues. He says this, um, sorry, yeah, verse 9. He says, uh, next page for me. He says, for just verse 4, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Notice this, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Notice this, there again, that condescension we were looking at last week. The humility of the Savior. As He was lowered, and as He was lowered to the point of death, even death on the cross, God has highly exalted Him to the name above every name. You see, that's the same for us. As we humble ourselves in repentant faith, as we bow before Him and say, You are my Lord and my King and my Master, as we come to Him with, with cleansed hearts, and cleanse your hearts, and, your, and you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. As we humble ourselves as we do that, that is our response to His coming. He came, we pursue. But notice this, even in, um, in Hebrews chapter 4, when we looked at Hebrews 4.16, it's this throne of grace. Draw near. He's saying, come draw near to the throne of... It's grace. His description of His throne. You think about most thrones. I think of... I think of murder. I think of like they've taken these things. I'm thinking how they've conquered kingdoms and this has allowed them to have this throne. And his throne, you know, a lot of thrones you could think of like it took a lot of, of, lot of, uh, of conquering kingdoms and a lot of, of, you just don't see their throne as a, a gracious throne. We see it as kind of telling people what to do and putting people in their place. And God's throne is described as a, a, a throne of grace to find mercy. I'm sure before a lot of thrones over the centuries of time, there's not been a lot of mercy given at those thrones. But here at the throne of God, it's described as a throne of grace that where you can find mercy and help in time of need. You see, so what is our response to this God who has come? Emmanuel, God with us. Listen, our response is to draw near as he has drawn near um, to us. I wanted, to, I wanted to end with this. John Stott, uh, in, the, in the book, is a great book. It's super practical. I would encourage any of you, if you haven't read it before, John Stott wrote a book called Basic Christianity. If you need one, I have like five copies at home. So um, Basic Christianity. Um, and he says, basically put it this way. He said, anybody who ever met Jesus Christ only really ever had three responses to him. So these people, as you look at Christ on earth, we look in the Gospels, I just... I've just we're almost finished reading the Gospels over the past um, several weeks and a, couple, a few months um, of time with some of the guys, and we're just about to finish reading the Gospels. And as I've been reading on these Gospels, I've just been reflecting and seeing, and you see a lot of these things. You see how people interacted with them. Just this week, I was reading uh, in John, and it was amazing to see here God heals this blind person. God heals this blind person, and a whole chapter 
of this is about these Pharisees and these religious people trying to figure out why this happened and who did this and what happened and how did this really happen. Like, they don't, they're not amazed at what happened. They're just constantly, they're begrudgingly. You see their hatred. Their hearts are dead set against Jesus. And this is why I think, John, you see it as you read the Gospels. It really does stand out if you pay attention. And he said it this way. Anybody who ever met Jesus Christ only ever had three responses to him. They either were terrified and wanted to run away. If you remember, I mean, there was a few times, a few instances of that with demonic uh, possession where these people, I mean, they didn't want to be in his presence, get away, run as fast as way and get away as possible. Terrified and wanted to run away. Or they hated him and wanted to kill him. And you see the hatred of the religious leaders. They wanted to kill him and stone him to death. And then here, or just the three things. They were terrified, they hated and wanted to kill him, or they worshipped him and got down on their knees and gave him everything. I mean, when you look at the disciples, when he calls them, you see them just drop. The immediacy is what's impressive when you read the gospel accounts of the disciples calling. They immediately dropped their nets and followed him. They left everything. They left their dad in the boat and got up and followed Jesus. You see that. You see the response. You see, because he came, we can know that he loves us, that he took the initiative. So our only natural response should be to worship. We should be able to worship who God is and what he has done. Because he has come, we can know what God is like. We can... And here's the cool, here's the great thing. Matthew chapter one, right? Matthew chapter one kind of opens up this ministry of Jesus and it tells us that he is Emmanuel, God with us, this great promise. But do you remember how Matthew 28 ends? It's the same promise. He says, as you go to make disciples, what's the promise at the very end of Matthew? Matthew kind of bookends it here. And he says, I will be with you even to the end of the age. And here's the great promise. And here's the hope that we have is Christ came. And yes, he came and he purchased our freedom. He, his mission that we're going to look at next week, his mission, the mission of the Savior is extraordinary and it's coming at a great cost to himself and at no cost to us. It's a free gift. He came and he comes with a mission and he leaves us with a mission. But here's the other thing is he leaves us and says, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm going to come back for you. And so when we sing a song like, Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, we can almost, we can say, Hey, he is with us because he came. But there's one day that he's going to come the second time and he's going to come to bring his bride. He's coming back for his bride and he's saying, you're going to come and be with me and we'll be, what is the promise? Forever with the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 4, we see that. In 5, we see this great promise of his imminent return and saying, I'm going to come back for you and you'll be forever with me, with the Lord for all of eternity. It's this great promise. You see, we're to taste and see that the Lord is good. John Wesley uh, who was John and Charles Wesley. If you probably, you've probably, probably heard of them. They've written a, a boatload, like thousands of hymns, actually. And, um, and John, West, John Wesley, of the Methodist movement, and the Methodist, um, you know, lying in his deathbed, his last words were, the best of all is God is with us. What a great promise that God is with us. Even in death, He's with us. In the lowest points of your life, He is there. He's with you. In your mountaintops, He's with you, shouting in celebration and joy. The angels are celebrating. Every time someone comes, a new, a new sinner repents of their sin and comes to the, to the Savior. He is there and He'll be with you. For, and we can be with Him forever with the Lord. But what is our response? How do we respond? What should we doing? He's drawn near. What are we to do? We draw near too. 
listen, I want to encourage you as you as we go. You know, you'll probably start you know some new new traditions maybe this Christmas or maybe coming into the new year you're going to set some new uh, uh, goals and you maybe I, I will encourage you write out some goals set up some you know if you have a little bit of time this week and going into January uh, 2022 which is crazy um, as we go into that year maybe set some new some new goals maybe set some things that'll be like you know what I want to draw I want to draw closer to the Lord so what do I need to do this year to make that a goal to accomplish that goal what do I need to do this 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 year Set aside more time, you know, carve out more time, free yourself up of the craziness maybe of your life and to carve out some time to be with the Lord. He's come and he's with you. Hey, how about you stop a few things and be with him and experience relationship with him as well. So my hope is that you'll have a great Christmas, that it won't just be just a bunch of sentimental feelings, but it would be a reminder that Christ has come and he didn't just come. He comes as Emmanuel, God, that is who is like, it's his title. It's a title for him. His name is Jesus, Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. Um, But who he is, he's God with us, Emmanuel. The great promise that God is with us. Um, So let me pray. Let Let me close our time together. And maybe right now we need to maybe repent of some areas where we haven't drawn near and we need to purify our hearts and cleanse our hands from our sin or our double-mindedness, our half-heartedness. As John Stott was saying, you can't, I mean, there's worship, run away, or hate him. There's really not any in-betweens. There's not half-hearted worship. Um, And so maybe there's areas where we need to repent of that. So I'm going to pray as we close. Father, we love you. May that not just be something that we say uh, tritely, that we love you. May our actions reflect that. Thank you for initiating this relationship. I mean, that's what this is. When you say Emmanuel, God with us, that shows relationship, shows a desire to be with us. You know, most of us around the Christmas season want to be with our family. We want to be with those we love. I thank you that you came as we celebrate this at the Christmas season. You're coming to be with us. I thank you that you initiated this relationship, that you pursued us, that you're not hiding out somewhere in the in outer space somewhere. God, you are with us. Thank you that you're with us through our trials. There's been a lot of trials and difficulty over this past year. Thank you for the promise of your presence. Thank you that you go with us, that you're a refuge, a fortress, a strong tower uh, that can help us through difficult times. God, forgive us for our lack of love. God, forgive us for forgetting this great promise that you are with us, that you come and you um, pursue us. Father, help us to draw near to you just as you have drawn near to us. Help us to spend more time with you this year. May we maybe read through our Bible for the first time, maybe for some. Maybe others just starting kind of a Bible reading plan and kind of getting a little bit more consistent in that area and spending more time with you or dedicating ourselves to praying more. I pray that these would not just be things that we start out in January and and they fade out by mid-January. I pray that it would become a lifelong habit of growing closer to you and modeling ourselves after you because we can know what you're like because you came. So help us to model our lives and follow the pattern that you set for us of love, of sacrifice, of service, of obedience, of relationship with the Father. Help, we, help us to have that same kind of relationship that we can experience. So help us this season. We thank you for the Christmas season. We thank you for each of these families. I pray your blessings on them. Uh, I pray for those who are sick and away from us or others that are traveling for their safety as well. 
Uh, give us a great time uh, reflecting and remembering uh, and reminding of ourselves of Emmanuel, God with us. We love you. We thank you for all these things and these truths. And we ask it in your son's name. Amen.